Well, I hope this morning will maybe further reinforce what we were just singing about. If if you're new to Fellowship Bible Church, I often wear an apron when I'm preaching just in case things get kind of crazy up here. No, I've, you know those cooking shows where they, uh, you know, you, you get on there and they've prepared something ahead of time and you get to kind of learn about how to put it all together. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to cook something up this morning. I want to take you back. We're in Isaiah and uh, I want to take you back to the title of our series because that's going to help us today. Uh, we titled it Holding Out Hope. So the whole book of Isaiah is this idea of God holding out hope to a people who are constantly putting their hope in all the wrong things. We've seen it again and again and again. And nothing has uh, displayed the waywardness of Judah than their practice of idolatry. That was something that was true of all the nations around them. They had the one true God and yet... To everyone's surprise, we're all thinking, what in the world? They are actually setting up and worshiping idols. Now, God was very explicit when he created this nation and he called these people to himself. Remember, he gave them 10 commandments. You guys remember those? Remember the first two? It wasn't like one wasn't enough. You needed two of them. The first was... You shall have no other gods before me. So it was as if God knew, man, we got to start off, we got to get this right because all the other stuff that's going to come after, if they get that one wrong, it all falls apart. So you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second was you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Don't create anything in the likeness of anything on earth. And then bow down and worship or serve it. Those were the first two commands. And yet, we read in Isaiah chapter 2. Do you remember? We read Isaiah describing Judah that the land was filled with idols. People making stuff and then worshiping and serving it. So I thought I would help us kind of make a connection with those long ago primitive people who got suckered into idolatry. I, I just thought I would use some of my culinary skills and uh, put something here that would just help us. And this is purely for illustration purposes. So I don't want anybody to get nervous here <laughs> that I'm doing something I shouldn't. So this stuff that I'm putting together, it's... It's just fruit, right? But you know, somewhere, somebody plowed a field and put some fertilizer down and maybe put some seed in the ground, watered it, and and then right out of the ground, you know, uh, these plants grew up. And then there was this fruit. And then somebody packaged that fruit up and they delivered it over there to the Kroger's. And and then I went by there and, and purchased it and this morning, but, but I used my skills, my, my culinary insight to create. <laughs> I like to call him, where's my little, uh, where, here we go. Oh, there we go. Cantalupe. <laughs> the God of fruitfulness. <laughs> See what I did there? 
Now, here's the funny thing. What would you think if I were to just fall down on the ground, prostrate, and begin to worship this pile of fruit? You'd think that's pretty weird, wouldn't you? Kind of silly. Like, who in the world would ever do that? Who would ever worship a thing? And not just a thing, but a thing that I made. Doesn't that seem kind of backwards? Yet that's exactly how it happened. And that's exactly how it happens right now. Let me read to you from uh, Isaiah 44. This is a description of idolatry back in Isaiah's day. Chapter 44 beginning in verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest, kind of like we did with this cantaloupe. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he also eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. For you are my God. Isn't that strange? One tree. Part of the wood you bundle together and you set it on fire and it warms you up. Another bit of it you break into pieces and throw into the stove and you can cook a great meal. And then you got a little bit left over, so you get out your whittling knife and carve it up a little bit so it has some kind of appearance of a person. And then you worship it as if it could really do something for you. Here's the irony of idolatry. Man worships what he makes out of materials made by his creator. Man worships what he makes and he makes it out of materials that are made by the one who made him. How bizarre. It does seem kind of primitive. Kind of something that an unsophisticated group of people would, would do. But certainly no one like us. Here's what uh, Timothy Keller has to say about that. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. 
Each, of, each has its priesthoods, its totems, and its rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We're not so different, are we? I want to recommend two books to you. Uh, one is uh, the book that this came from, Counterfeit Gods, by Timothy Keller, and then another one, Gods at War, by Kyle Eidelman. Both terrific resources around this whole subject. And some have argued that idolatry truly is the single most important problem addressed in the Bible. We we think about it, certainly I do, really as some kind of ancient problem. And then there's all kinds of contemporary stuff that, that we have to deal with. But at its heart, what's really wrong with all of us is that we are willing to exchange the faith that we have in God for faith in a cantaloupe. And I, I'm purposefully making that sound ridiculous because that's what idolatry is. And that's what God wants us to know. Now let's think about the idols of our day. What, what does that look like here? Now in idolatry generally, here's all it is. It's when the human heart takes something that is good and ordinary and makes it ultimate. Like an end in and of itself. Somehow that thing, that inanimate thing, is supposed to meet needs that are bigger than me. Those things that threaten me. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But let me give you some general categories, places that you might begin to look. A job could be an idol. Your possessions. Sex. Money, popularity, food, family, success. All of those things are good. They're wonderful provisions of our creator. But every one of them can be made into an ultimate thing. Meant to meet our deepest needs. Now what are those needs? Three big categories very helpful so that we can see through the deception of idolatry. First is security. Security. We all need it. Uh, we were just singing about fear. We feel fearful. We fear frail, right? We're vulnerable. Hey, we're all going to die someday, right? That's kind of threatening. And so there's something in us that desperately wants to feel Secure. And you know, God's invisible. He can seem distant. I, wouldn't it be nice if I could just surround myself with something that gives me immediate relief from that fear? Great systems and procedures and income and all that kind of stuff. That, that could give me hope. 
but it's a false hope. The second category is significance. Significance. Don't we all want to matter? Like we look at this gigantic universe and this big world and millions and billions of people all around us and we can wonder, do I really matter at all? Now, the Bible says that I'm an image bearer, that I actually display in a limited sort of way the likeness of my creator, and that gives me unthinkable worth, incredible value, but it's not enough. I need to know that I matter in a big, big way, and so I will look to things like another promotion or uh, a, an award of some kind competing against my fellow image bearers. I'll actually sacrifice very important things like my family in order to have something over here that validates my existence. Significance. Security and significance. The last one may seem a little strange to you, but I want you to, to at least give it some consideration. It's sensuality. Sensuality. Now, now, think about this. We've been given five senses, right? Have you ever thought about why God would make you with those senses? Eyes to see, ears to hear, nose to smell, taste, touch, is it just for the end result of whatever pleasure we might experience as a result of using those senses? Or is it bigger? Is it perhaps that we were given those senses to experience the creation around us so that we might understand the goodness of our creator? Like maybe that's why we were given these things, but we use them for distorted purposes. I'm meant to see creation, beauty, all that can amaze us through our sight. Or I could look at pornography, which gives me a cheap thrill, which gives me a feeling that is an end in and of itself. It's an illegitimate way to use this sense that God gave me to point me to him. Our idols occupy these places illegitimately. Security, significance, and sensuality. I wonder where you feel most vulnerable in any of those three areas. I would encourage you to think about it. Sensuality is kind of the place where I am most likely, most prone to wander as the song goes. Where do you feel most vulnerable? Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That, that word uncertainty is really helpful because that describes everything but God. See how that works? Now, I can ascribe all the certainty in the world to anything under the sun, but it doesn't make it so. Paul says, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches or anything else, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. How about that? 
Three other passages I came across, 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians 3, 1 John 5, all with grave warnings against idolatry. Setting up anything that you might have made in order to get security, significance, or sensuality. So how do we battle our heart's attraction for these things? How do we push against that? The first is exactly what God does in uh, chapter 41. Now we're going to go to the beginning of our passage. Chapter 41, 21 through 29. God exposes the illegitimate power given to inanimate things. He really shows us the truth about idols, beginning in verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. So last week, Jeff, uh, in the passage that he took us through, he was exposing idolaters. Now we're going straight after the idols themselves. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm. Do something. It's kind of the idea there. Do something that we may be dismayed and terrified. In other words, so that we can know that you're God's. Now, let me tell you how this would have gone down. We'll use Cantalupe here. I might come to Cantalupe and say, where did we come from? Silence is awkward, isn't it? <laughs> Who's going to win the NHL Finals. I'm talking to Cantalupe, not you guys. What is the solution for my greatest problem? And can you deliver me? It just, it's silly, isn't it? But think about all that you have, all that you own. All that you have access to. Don't you ask those same questions? And aren't they really just as silent? You might get a temporary hit. You might get a moment of relief. But those things have nothing to offer you. But to point to their true maker. And yours. That's what those things are able to give us. Your idols, however spectacular or sophisticated they may be, can't do any more for you than a cantaloupe. I hope you'll never forget that. Verse 29 of that passage I was just reading says this, Behold, your idols are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Empty wind. Whenever you find yourself tempted to reach out and grasp for something that is truly lifeless, remember that. It's a delusion. 
It is a figment of your imagination and no amount of desire on your part will change reality. So you have a choice. You can reach out for an inanimate, lifeless idol or you can reach out to its maker. Here's what idols do. They dwell in our deception. As long as we are unclear about this, idols flourish. They're just fine. Idols consume our attention. Because they really can't give us true certainty, true confidence. So we become absorbed. We become obsessive trying to get them to do what they're unable to do. They facilitate our transgressions. I promise you, Cantalupe is never going to say, hey man, I'm just a cantaloupe. You need to turn your attention back to God. He'll take all the worship I have to give him. And so will everything else that you look to for hope. Finally, it promotes, idols promote our destruction. They're just fine. With us going in the tank. So the first thing we got to do. If we're going to fight this tendency toward idolatry. First thing is we have to see idols for what they really are. Secondly, we need to see God's remedy for homemade saviors. And that's in uh, chapter 42. There's a larger section, verses 1 through 17, but in the first four verses, we actually come across the first servant song. There are four of those in the book of Isaiah, and this is the most beautiful part of the second half of the book. This is why we get such hope from these chapters. It's because we're introduced to the servant Savior. Listen to these words beginning in verse 1 of chapter 42. Behold my servant... Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. This is God talking and he's describing one that he will provide. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice, there it is again, in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Obviously, when we see words repeated again and again, we probably ought to pay attention and try and figure out what's going on here. So what is it about this servant and justice? What is that all about? Well, obviously, in the garden, there was great offense. There was sin and there was death. And injustice was introduced to creation. And so this servant comes to make things right in the biggest sort of way. Now, this term justice literally is, it's a pretty versatile term, so it can encompass a lot of things. It has legal correctness. In other words, the servant is going to come and sort of legally make things right again. So it's at least that. But it's also this idea of bringing justice is to actually bring revelation 
to reveal what is true. One commentator says, this servant will bring the Lord's truth and the truth about the Lord. And isn't that what we need in the midst of our delusion? When we're worshiping stuff that isn't alive, that can't do anything for us, don't we need to know the truth about the Lord? So that we can believe rightly. Lastly, this word justice represents a blueprint for human flourishing. The way things ought to be. God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? The prayer. Someday, that work will be completed. But until then, we need the servant to bring justice into our view so that we can live in that direction until the work is done. John Oswalt says this, that, that justice is the life-giving order which exists when creation is functioning in accordance with God's design. So that's the servant savior. And then following up to that, the creator speaks or addresses uh, speaks to or addresses the servant. So there's this conversation that we know from where we're sitting, a conversation between the father and the son. Listen to these words. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So God is making it very explicit that he alone is the creator. That helps us with idolatry, right? Because we're creating things as if we're the creator. So he's being very explicit here. And here's what he says, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you, servant, in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, the father saying to the son, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. That's the creator. That is the servant savior. That is the truth. Not just the truth about those things that we might mistakenly place our hope in, but that is the truth about the one and only who is worthy of every bit of hope we possess, every bit of faith we possess, every bit of trust that we can express. Now, this servant savior, in contrast to what idols offer, does four things, develops our discernment. Notice in verse 16, the, the mention of guiding the, the blind, giving sight that's really all about discernment, seeing things as they truly are, not how we might want them to be. Uh, this servant savior commands our affection. And th that's an interesting word, commands, because on the one hand, we are commanded to love the Lord, right? With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was in Deuteronomy 6, and then it shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we are commanded to love the Lord, 
But here's our problem. We do that out of a place of self-will. We're like, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I ought to love the Lord. I, I just, I'm going to make myself love the Lord. But the servant Savior commands our attention in that he fills our view. When we see Christ for who he really is, we love him. It's a response. It's not, it's not something, a box that we check. It's us going, you are the servant savior. You're the one who can deliver me. Not this. And I love you for that. Thank you for loving me. Do you see how that works? The servant savior commands our affection. The servant savior cleanses our transgressions later in this passage. And this whole passage is about the contrast between idolatry and the one true God. And we see that the one true God blots out our transgressions. The one true God can, can basically make you not guilty. Wipe away your sin, completely forgiven, as we've been talking about. No idol can do that. Finally, the uh, servant savior secures our deliverance. And that really is the essence of what uh, Isaiah's first readers would have been confronted with. And really put yourself in the shoes of the Babylonians. They've been in exile. They've been under the discipline of the Lord. God does seem very distant, right? And wouldn't it be nice to have something around, something I can put my hands on to help me feel better about my circumstances? And so God gives them a word. He's saying, I am your deliverer. And I'm going to deliver you in two ways. I'm going to deliver you from Babylon. And I'm going to deliver you from the penalty and the power of sin. In uh, this text, in between chapters 42 and 45, God says, behold, I am doing a new thing. That was his reference here to this act of deliverance. And it's pretty cool um, because he's, he's actually pointing back to the first thing. Back in Exodus, remember when he delivered his nation from the people of Egypt? That was the first thing. That was where God took an entire nation and brought them out from what at that time was the most powerful empire on earth. So he delivered them, took them through the wilderness, landed them in the promised land, fulfilling his promises to them. Then they go after idols. I, it's just hard to imagine, although we can all relate. So they go again under the discipline of the Lord and end up in exile under the new most powerful empire on earth, the Babylon, the Babylonians. And God says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to deliver you from them. Unheard of in history that an entire nation would be sent into exile and not just evaporate but actually return and remain. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we see these themes of the Lord's discipline, the Lord's redemption, the Lord's witnesses, and the Lord's deliverance. It's amazing that God would do that for an idolatrous people. And 
I asked myself as I was studying this passage, what in the world would cause God to do all that? Why? Why would creator God do that? It's in your outline. God's glory and our good. In that order. God's glory and our good. Uh, chapter 43, verse 7 God is describing the work that he's doing for this idolatrous people, but he describes them, everyone who is called by my name, that's the people that he is delivering, and then he describes them this way, whom I created for my glory. That's the priority of the Lord. Secondly, in verse 21, he describes the people again, whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. And doesn't that make more sense than me worshiping something that I made? Doesn't it make sense that I would worship the one who made me? It, it seems so simple, so elementary. But that's our problem. We forget that very elementary truth. We were created to worship our creator, not what we can make with this and that that we find around us. Lastly, in verse 25, chapter 43, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. It's a display of his goodness and his glory. That's why he does it. And he says, I will not remember your sins. Wow. What a gift to idolatrous people. So what are we to do? I love what Timothy Keller uh, says. Idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. I want to give you some questions. We want to start with identifying those idols that you might have in your life and then give you some ideas about replacing them. Here's some questions I'd love for you to consider. What occupies your mind when you have nothing else demanding your attention? And that may actually be a rare occasion as distracted as we are. But maybe when you lay your head down on your pillow at night what thoughts are racing through your head might be an indication of an idol. What do your calendar and your bank account tell you about the priorities of your heart? There's almost no better indication of where our affections really lie than those two things. How we invest our time and how we invest our money. That shows us what's really important to us. Lastly, where do you turn when life gets hard? See, you and I do just fine when things are going along pretty well and things are on track and kind of expected. But I begin to discover where I place my hope when the wheels fall off, when life gets unmanageable, when things get out of control then you'll find out who I'm really trusting in. Myself, something of this world, or the one true God.
great questions to identify those places where we might be prone to idolatry. And then two uh, great words. One is in uh, chapter 44, verse 21, and the second is in chapter 42, verse 10. Chapter 44, the Lord says, remember these things, talking about all of the deliverance that uh, God has promised, has really obligated himself to. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And if you are a Christ follower, if you have entrusted your life to Christ, that is true of you. And that is your remedy for idolatry. Because when you hold those two up, one can save you and one cannot. And, and it, it just brings some clarity to the deception that can get at all of us. Then in chapter 42, there's this great little section, just three verses, 10 through 13. But we're told, after hearing of the servant Savior, to sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and all their inhabitants. There is, like we were made to worship. And when we see God for who he really is and we know what he has really done and we're aware of what he's promised to do, we will worship rightly. It will be directed straight at him. And things like this will be laughable. When we're in that moment of temptation and delusion, we'll choose to give worship where worship is truly due. So I want to give you a moment this morning. Uh, this, this can be a, an uncomfortable thing <laughs> to come to terms with those places in our hearts where we run away from the Lord, but I want to ask you to kind of sit in that for a moment. Ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit given to you to guide you into all truth, so ask him, where, where am I prone to give worship where it does not belong? Ask the Lord to show you that this morning.